you got to be ready. And welcome to your daily game face. What? You said you're not ready. I said oh. you got to be ready. Oh, wow. I, oh, my God. It's like I'm hearing God in here today. Why? Wow, what's going like, on? No, that's amazing. I could hear you so much better today. Why? One of the headphones up loud? I don't know, but it's amazing. Okay, cool. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. And uh, welcome to your daily game face. I'm Dr. Kimberly Lannon, and I've just confused Lou Blasi, my yes, amazing have. producer. Because I'm wondering what's changed. Because <laughs> I have really good sound in the studio on my side this morning, so I'm like, oh, always now I don't have to scares go, ah, me when things say? change. Yeah. See, I still have to go, what? Because I was talking over you. It, it's always, it always scares me when things change. I'm one I, of those people. See, I love change. You Sometimes. do? Sometimes. Not yeah. always, but it depends on the change. So I'd like everyone to note if you were... Oh, oh, thank you. You put a different background up. Everyone that's no, no, watching. No, no, no. no. I had dogs behind me and not my, my game face. That's a beautiful picture of New York City actually behind me now. Well, that's Chromecast is, is uh, revolving pictures, so that'll change in a few minutes as well. Okay, Normally, so we have the game face uh, website up there, but uh, the computer that does that is doing a Windows update. Yes. And we're 11% done. So much to my surprise when I walked in, there were two dogs on the screen, yeah. and I was like, what is that? That is not my logo. So, but yes, now I have these beautiful pictures scrolling behind me. Yep. And it was very entertaining. Um, so Lou, <laughs> I walk in this morning, and, and Lou's in, very invested in a conversation. Oh, my buddy Dave. About, about relationships and yes. people and teenagers and... Yes. Women. Yes. <laughs> and wasn't wasn't necessarily going to be the topic for today, but certainly, you know, we can always talk about you those things. You want to do relationships? Yes. Yeah. But before we talk about all that stuff, and I'm in the middle of, like, about to sneeze, okay. of course, because I come in here and I always feel like I have to sneeze. I'm sorry. And I'm not I sick. I don't know. I know. Um, uh, so the Boston Marathon is off and running, no pun intended, this week. Oh, have the you done your run yet? I have not done it yet. Yeah. I've seen a couple people. Yeah, up in Newburyport? Yeah. Awesome. Seemingly. So, well, I, I mean, I, I'm guessing that's what they're doing. Well, well, do they have a 2020 bib on, or do they have their large bib with, like, six, five digits on it? Um, you don't know. No. <laughs> Is there a yellow bib? Is it... Yes, there. Well, if people printed it out, it could be all kinds of different okay. colors. So, yeah. but. I saw one so, with a yellow bib. Oh. Well, it could have been that race. It could have been something else. But it will say Boston or have Adidas on it. Yeah. So, um, but, yes, it started on Saturday the 5th and goes through the 14th. It's virtual. It's actually very unique. I have to I have to give kudos out to the Boston Athletic Association and Dave McGilvery and Tom Grilk, who are some of the big uh, organizers of it, the race director and et cetera, because it is probably, excitingly, the best thing that could have happened to the Boston Marathon outside of being canceled, obviously, because yeah. it was canceled, that it's actually being really well done, you know, for a virtual run. I've done a couple other little virtual runs over the summer, yeah. and they've been just, you know, you, you do it, and you go out, and then you log your time, and you get your medal in the mail kind of thing. Yeah. But this has been pretty fantastic. Like, they built a whole app around it. They built, like, everything in it so that you could load up your – you could either – you could run inside on a treadmill. You could run around a track. You could run a regular route. You can track it on multiple different apps. They built an app, which has had a little trouble because even when I've tried to, like, load it up, it has a little trouble. So there is well, some troubleshoots. this was seven months ago. I mean, coming up with all this stuff and. 
and, seven months and, is and no incredible. time right yeah. and it's so if for for what it's been for short timing and then not only that but they put the whole expo up online so all the vendors or a vast majority of the vendors that normally are 200 people deep you know for vendors at the expo in boston mm-hmm. you know tons of them are online you can go in every day they have the regular um seminars that you can see like yoga in the morning and a guest speaker and and i mean it's really being fantastically well done so i'm you know not only proud of being part of the marathon this year as always but i'm just so proud of the baa and these guys for and these women for doing a great job of doing um following all the runners i mean there's tons of people out there running as i think yesterday there was there's 18,000 registered for the virtual out of the 30 something thousand that were supposed to run mm-hmm. and i think yesterday we hit about 3500 have completed so they have until monday we have until monday i'm going to probably do it either Friday or Saturday at this point. I'm just watching weather. <laughs> it will not be on Sunday because the rain forecast is coming. So I will oh, not be no. running in the rain because if you don't know this, which I think you do, you hate and for, for people out there that gave me a hard time this week already, and I will only use first names, Josh has <laughs> has laughed at me going, you're going to run in the rain? Because, you know, so I'm a little... Yeah. Um, because it's going to rain on Sunday and Monday. So I probably will not be doing it Sunday, Monday, but I will definitely be doing it Friday or Saturday. Just haven't picked yet. Have um, you had the thought yet that they should run the thing in September anyway? Because the weather has been great. I mean, I, I well, know it's a kind of an miss. odd year, but yeah. It's a hit or miss because in September, the weather goes to being, it could be 60. Could be 90. Or it could be 90. Yeah. And I mean, you can do that in April too, but you're more likely to get right. a middle of the road kind of day or... Every single year I've run just about has been raining, monsooning, yep. snowing, sleeting, hailing, windy, mm. the worst weather in 43 years. <laughs> I've you know, everything April I've showers, run. you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so, but it's really great because I've seen a lot of people out there, great stories out there. People are posting up pictures. There's lots of news carriers coming out and, and photo op. I mean, it's been really good. So I don't see a lot of other races or any other races doing that. So I think it's a real testament to um, honoring runners who are running for themselves running for charities running for their own you know just their own personal just records which i hope to be doing this year because i've been training it feels like forever mm-hmm. um because as you know when march something hit yeah. and they canceled it or moved it and whatever then i just i didn't stop i just kept training yeah. <laughs> and just did a reset so it, it's been um and when normally do you start training for November is when I started training for April. Oh, see, so you're gonna get so, <laughs> gonna get a month off. So I'm coming right. So I'm coming right back up on November very yeah. quickly. So um, I know people have been asking me how long are you gonna take off, and I'm like, oh, I don't really stop running. I just will cut it back to. I won't be doing 40 and 50 miles a week. I'll just cut it back to, you know, 25 for a week or two, yeah. and then I'll just I keep it because I use it for weight management as well yeah. because it also keeps me in the ability to eat what I want. And it also makes me, that's my therapy. That's my therapy. How many so calories that, do you burn running? What? How many calories do you burn running in a week? Oh, in a week? Yeah. I have not figured that out. I could probably figure it out sometime and tell you. But mm. I mean, so if I run 10 miles, I burn like a thousand calories. So. What? Well, it's a thousand, you know, if you do like it's for that day. A thousand calories? Yeah. If I'm doing like eight minute miles. Mm-hmm. It should be more than that, shouldn't it? Well, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> See, well, I mean, that's not in a that's not in a week. That's just for the for the that day. No, but I can go. I can go on a treadmill and hike up the elevator if the treadmill counts are correct, which they probably well, aren't. Well, they're weirdly calibrated. Yeah. But so if I go on a treadmill and I do a steep incline and do 
three, four miles, I'm burning five, six, seven hundred calories. So why right, would I run you're 10 doing, miles? Because you're doing uphill. So if yeah. you're just doing like a regular flat, if you're just thinking flat straight, I'm just giving you yeah. kind of the average. It's that. So it depends. If you start adding in hills, it burns a little more, you know. Yeah. Just one of those things. Yeah, because when I when I run the whole marathon, I mean, at least on my trackers and my watches, which I've seen, I think I only burn like maybe 4,500, 5,000 oh, calories. That's... That's always what it says. It could yeah. be wrong. I've never really done the math on that because I really don't follow my calories like that. I just kind of go with miles and time and how it feels. But yeah. I could figure that out. So Because I treat the treadmill the same way you treat running. It's like I want to burn off X amount of calories right. so I can eat X amount of calories more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It's, it's or, the or mind if game I'm, If I'm in the deficit. Um, or if I'm in the deficit game to keep my deficit. I can eat right. a little more and keep my deficit. Right. Well, this morning I did five miles, 5.3 miles, and I burned 657 calories. Yeah. So, and that was a, a combination of straight and hills and blah, okay. blah, blah. So, um, so and, and that took about... But it's not enough to get me off the treadmill and out running. <laughs> the <Yeah>. difference. <laughs> like I said, I can do 400 calories. I can do four or 500 calories, you know, in about an hour on, on a treadmill. Yeah, so well, so when you just and so when if a person's just generally walking too, so it's like on average is like it depends on how fast you walk, but we'll do a general average. It's like a hundred calories an hour if someone's just kind of me, I call it meandering. Right. So if you're doing you know a, a forty minute clip for a mile, you're probably getting like you know 150, 200 calories. You know if you're going pretty fast, and the faster you go, the more incline, yeah. you know, in the, the more calories, um, but. I have to figure that out. Now I'm going to be, I'm, that's what I'm going to do today. I'll well, be like sitting at work that, going, excuse yeah. me, I can't talk to you. I have to figure <laughs> out my calories because I have to answer Lou's question. Um, but so I was saying that I, I use it oh, for Oh, because I was thinking, weight. you're talking about in the middle of training, you're doing, what did you say, 40, 50 miles a week? Yeah. And I'm thinking 40, 50 miles a week, I could eat anything. Oh, see, I see, I can't, and so, so I. Have I mean, to, I wouldn't, but I that would be like woohoo. Well, I shouldn't say I can't. I yeah. don't because what I would pick to eat would make me enormous because I would love to eat stuff that's not good yeah, for me. I understand. And so, um, yeah, but just my body type, and there's some people that can go out and do that and be skinny as a rail. I'm because of my gymnast background and my musculature. I support a heavier frame, I think. Oh, I see. So yeah. I'm more muscular. So I'm. <clears throat> so if you can't see me and you've never seen me, I'm really I'm not fat, but I just am. I'm a gymnast body, yeah. as Dr. Mike said a couple weeks ago. Yeah. Kim's a gymnast body, so um, it's not that. It's just you know I can't. Right. And I because I would eat pasta, potatoes, <laughs> all the comfort foods. I'd be like. Ugh. Yeah, exactly. So um, it's a it's a whole lifestyle change of like over the years that I've just. You know, I run and I eat right and clean and occasionally have a mm -hmm. thing of whatever. Do you carb up before you do your run? No, I do not. So that's an interesting thought about because so that that's like an old there's there's like the new school of thought and the old school of thought. I mean, there's thoughts in between too. But the old school is you know carb up. Here's the problem with carbing up. If you've been a clean eater, for instance, like I am, and all of a sudden two days before, three days before, you start loading up on carbs. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's a problem on the course. So when people have done that, and I've seen many people over the years that I've trained for marathons, and I've trained for Boston, and I've trained, you know, and been done, they will change up their diet like within the last week because they're supposed to carb load and all these, you know, these fallacies that, and then they have problems, and yeah. then we have to have a modium and and all kinds of different things on the course. So um, 
I pretty much eat exactly what I eat all the time. I don't yeah. change anything right. because if I do, I'm in trouble. Are there provisions for that on the course? Now um, that you bring this up, I've always wondered. So so there are provisions on the course um, when you're running the normal yeah. Boston Marathon right. or any marathon. So the Boston Marathon, if it was the normal times, um, there's a water stop every mile, mm -hmm. which is fantastic. So it's, it's a big, long, I mean... I think it's an amazing sea of tables of water yeah. on on sides. And then there's a whole row on the same mile at each break of Gatorade. And Gatorade sponsors the event. So yep. they give cups and cups of Gatorade. Now, I don't train with Gatorade because Gatorade is very um, high in sugar for right. me. And so it makes me not feel good. So I don't train with any Gatorade. I just stick to water. And I have a little carry flask that I usually have. Um, and then Cliff... You know the cliff bars? Yep. They provide um, at the turn right before the fire station at mile 17, 18, right in between as you're going up the beginning of Heartbreak right. Hill. They provide cliff bar shots, you know, the little the little yeah. gummies and all that stuff. And then, and then, of course, the best thing about the Boston Marathon course is that from the beginning to the very end, pretty much you can get any kind of food product booze product water product ice fruit like because yep. people just come out and line the courses with and they hand out water ice that's one of the best things frozen bananas frozen oranges because those are great you know they're great sugar pushes for people when they need you know a natural boost which yep. i love um i actually set it up so that i have people along the route so that I know where they are, so I plan it and time it that I have something along the way yep. that people will have. Like I'm a big fan of the frozen orange slices, yep. Yep. and after that, I never eat oranges probably for like seven or eight <laughs> months after that because I'm done. Yep. Um, and then, uh, and then I and then I do Starburst because Starburst give you that quick you can suck on them, and and then I do little um, the little remember those old fashioned star candies that just are the mints that have they have enough sugar yeah. in them that carry yep. you know the little yep. I can't remember, Starlight candies I think that's yeah, what they're I called. I get a bag of those a couple of days before, and and I train with them so. Um, and everybody has their different things, but the, the course itself supports because people love the Boston Marathon, so people go out there and support. So even this weekend, a whole bunch of my friends who are running for different charities, like I'm a charity teamer as well, they they were out on their courses that they made and stuff like that, and they people were out doing provisions with yeah. them. And like so my friend, one of my friends was, he's on my, he did my house as part of his route, and I was mile 24. Yep. So we put out water, we had beer. He didn't take the beer because he'd already done several shots before he got oh, to me. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> Doing so, shots in a marathon? So, oh, oh, Lou, the stories I could tell oh, you. Man. I cannot do alcohol at all on the marathon route. So by the time you get to, this is one of the fun things that people do. So when you get to the top of Heartbreak Hill, you have Boston College. And oftentimes Boston College is very, you know, collegiate party yeah. central. So a lot of the houses will come out and they'll offer beer and shots and and it's kind of like a unspoken spoken thing that happens. So, and sort of like the the last five miles into Boston, you will see a lot of it because it comes down into the college area and yeah. along that route part well, of it. That just wraps me around to the original question that you just attempted to answer but didn't. <laughs> Thanks. Bring bring me back. Are there porta potties? <laughs> oh, oh, oh yeah. Um. So 
You didn't ask me that question, did you? I did. Are there provisions on the food? Oh, you are talked there provisions? About, I was thinking food. About, See, I'm thinking food. We were talking food, so I'm thinking provisions Well, you talked food. about carbs creating problems on a course, and I said, are there provisions <sighs> oh, for that on the course? Miscommunication. <laughs> this is This is why there's relational issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there are provisions on the course for for all kinds of things. Yes. So there are porta potties along the way, and they're all over. Like in there, okay. and, and so I know. So it's not hard to find one. No. Um, and people do use the woods. Um, <laughs> I suggest people not doing that. If well, the reason why I don't like it is because the year that I ran with Catherine Switzer, Catherine Switzer ran her first. She ran her 50th year, and I was on her team for the first year back of her 50th year of running the first time. Wow. And I was in, at, I was coming down the hill out of Hopkinton into Ashland, and this guy, and it's very tight. If you've never been to the start of, of the Boston Marathon, it's yeah. a million bajillion people, yeah. and they're all packed together. And you're not really running. You're, yeah. you're sort of going along, but you're running a little bit. And this guy comes flying out of the woods, you know, zipping up his zipper and whatever else he was doing, and he pushed me. Yeah. And I fell oh. and and like landed on my knee and ripped my capri pants open and I literally he was he hit me so hard I spun around and landed facing the oncoming runners God. and a whole bunch of guys just like picked me up lifted me and put me back on my feet and I kept running and I ran all the way to the end kind of a quick funny story I think is that I ran all the way obviously to the end finished and I never I never stopped to look at my knee I just knew it was right. if I'd stopped I was done right so I got to the end whatever and this this fireman walked up to me you know first responder at the end he's like oh my God, what happened to your knee? So I looked down, right? And so it's this little black capri pant that's like torn to smithereens, yep. blood pouring down my leg. I hadn't seen it. I hadn't looked. So I, my whole leg is covered in blood. I'm like, oh, I got pushed it like mile one and a half, whatever. And um, and he's like, oh my God. And so he started joking with me and I'm like, yeah, it's starting to hurt because now I'm done and whatever. And the lovely man said, you know, there's only one way to do this. And my pants were stuck and he knew oh. my pants were stuck and he just went rip oh. <laughs> and i was like okay well yeah. that's great because there so, had been some coagulation in, in, oh, in the last was, three hours yeah it was yeah. embedded with rock yeah. and oh man so yeah and he's like you're fine now and then he oh i would yeah <laughs> it was quite something so um i didn't have to use the bathroom clearly because i would have noticed my um yeah. pants on that that one but there's tons of porta potties along the way that people use and rows and rows and pretty much if you've done the marathon before you know where they are yeah. because they're always in the same spot um yeah. but and they're you know pretty well you know appointed there's always they're monitored and i know i've had to use them a few times yeah just just for peeing monitored monitored yeah well people go and make sure there's toilet paper and stuff like oh, that okay. you know that kind of thing oh. um this will probably gross you out if i'm having an actually good time which you know this year i'm really running for uh, like a, i'm trying to get a, a personal record because every year it's either been really bad weather or i've been injured as we were talking about a couple of weeks ago so it's been right. it's been a little rough on the timing so this year knock on wood i'm in a really good train space oh knock on wood i shouldn't say that probably out loud um <laughs> but when you're doing that and you're going along and you don't want to really cut your time or anything you pee in your pants and just let yeah. it run down your leg. Oh, I imagine. Yeah. You know, so it's all good. And yeah. I have no problem doing that. I have no shame. I can pee anywhere and I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so now that I grossed everybody out, I have no problem. And people go, oh, that's so gross. I'm like, yeah, well, when you're running for time and you want to do no stop, you pee. No, I had no doubt that happens all yeah. over the place. Oh, I'm God. Just, I... Absolutely. I mean, I could tell you some stories of all kinds of things that happen. Oh, the sure. Course. There were some famous stories. Of that oh, thing. yes. Yeah. Yes, and I have, I mean, whew, I've seen some 
I've seen some good stuff. So yeah. anyway, so the, so I will be running the Boston Marathon. And I wanted to give a shout out. For Remember last week I said, you know, anyone wants to donate to finish up my $10,000 because I was $499 away. Yeah. I made it because the lovely oh, listeners, the lovely listeners, um, you can still keep donating because it goes to a great cause anyway. But certainly um, they they finished me out and I'm so grateful that um, I hit my 10,000. I'm actually at $10,001. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had a, a, a very amazing donor that actually gave a couple times, he and his family gave a couple times over the season of watching me do and think it's, they think it's a great cause and charity. And also they think, um, maybe, maybe they think that, you know, I'm doing a good thing. So they came out and then a couple other people did like a group sponsor and did a couple extra and put in like a $250. So he did, he and his family did 250 and another group of couple people did 250 anonymously and Beautiful. Finish me out. So yep. I'm I'm very excited. And thank thank everybody who's sponsored me. There's been a ton of sponsors for the ten thousand. You know, a lot of people will just get one sponsor. Yeah. Some some you know, there's a couple of people on my team, fantastically, who were just able to get a ten thousand dollar sponsor, and then they raised like you know another thousand on top of it or so. That's normal. But then I yeah. I went out and like most of us on the team, we did. You know, I've got 700 different sponsors or donors because that's how we do it, you know? so That's normally a tough pull, $10,000. Yeah. But in, in this year, the way this thing laid out, it, it's incredible that you yeah, pulled $10,000. I'm, I'm very fortunate that this year I really pushed hard at the beginning to go out there and get the word out and share my story and why I'm doing it and did a lot of fundraising right at the beginning of the year. Um, and so I was very glad that when it came up to the time we canceled and went on hold that I was only just a little teeny short and I and I feel for my teammates I have 16 teammates and and there's about nine or ten people still that are below the minimum but nobody's being forced to do the minimum um we're being encouraged to do it and all the teams are just because but we understand everyone understands it's just one of those things but it's one of you know, it's kind of running if you if you're like 4.8 miles and you want to get to five miles and you're just short you just keep going yep that's how it felt for me i was like you can't i can't come up short 499 dollars <laughs> <laughs> i know right not <laughs> you know? that short like yeah. oh my god um so but i do thank everybody because it's it's a super important charity and we help a lot of people and if you don't want to give to my charity there's a million other charity team runners out there if you go to charity teams and you just look for somebody you can donate if you don't want to donate to me i'm good with you just helping people out the patriots foundation right mine is the new england patriots foundation Mm -hmm. if you go to first giving and you look up my name kimberly lannon and Mm -hmm. you want to give to me um it's it's uh under that and I'd be happy to have more donations. Yeah, the foundation does great work too. Yeah, so yeah, we so the as a really brief thing, so that people, you know, I know a lot of people said, oh, I don't like, you know, the Patriots Foundation. They already have a lot of money, so the designation really isn't. It doesn't. None of the money goes to the Kraft family. It's just a designation under the Patriots Foundation. It's under Meyer Kraft, who does the MVP, mm-hmm. you know, Most Valuable Player awards for. Um, we pick charities in New England every single year. And, you know, 10 to 12 charities that will receive the money that we raise on a yearly basis from doing this event and a couple other events for right. the New England Patriots. And the money specifically only goes, it doesn't go back into like Gillette Stadium. It doesn't go right. to the Kraft family. It doesn't go to the New England Patriots as players or cheerleaders. No. It it's goes a pass directly. Through. It goes, it's, yeah. a, it's a feeder to any of the charities that apply. And tons of charities apply to us every year. And then we, 
I don't, but the the people at the top go through yep. all the applications, and I nominated a couple charities this year, and then they pick, and then we disperse it out and have X amount, and we you know we give out a couple million dollars so a year in yep. in different grants and stuff to their charities, and they're all local, so they're anywhere in New England. They can be anywhere from Maine down to Rhode Island and Connecticut and so on. So, um, and it's fantastic because it 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 can be homelessness. Um, veterans, animal causes, domestic violence, um, uh, children. I mean, the, last year, I mean, the gamut was huge. Um, and a lot of local places right around this area where we're doing the show. Right. So. Excellent. All right. Well, anyway, so now that I've talked about that, I'll update you on if I make it amazing this week or if I die and crawl across the peninsula <laughs> <laughs> and have no rain. So, um but now, so th- my plan was to talk today around the fact that, and we're not talking about politics, we're talking about PTSD. I thought we haven't talked really a lot about veterans and PTSD, and yeah. I, work, I work with a ton of veterans. Mm-hmm. I work with Navy SEALs and Special Ops people, and, um, and, and, and kids going in as well, but you know, because I work with high-end athletes and Olympic-level athletes, I tend to also work with high-end veterans and high-end people who are serving in the right. military. Um, and I see a lot of post-traumatic stress disorder. And um, I thought we'd talk a little bit about that today. And then we can also talk about relationships, Lou, because, you know. Absolutely. Actually related, but that's another story. Right. So, um, but I, I just think that because, you know, as as we know, the news has been highlighting some some commentaries and whatever on, on, on veterans and so on and so forth, I think that it's important to know what, Veteran, I mean, it's a it's a big deal, and I think yeah. for a long time, and even still, it, it, you know, some places it gets very minimized and underrated and not understood. And I mean, the history of the history of shell shock, yep. <laughs> which is what it was. You know, it never had a name before that. Well, it did. And it had neuroses, war neuroses, and shell. You know, it's, yep. it's evolved over time to have understanding. Um, and so now that basically after Vietnam War, we have a, a very broad yet very narrow understanding, you know, by narrow, I mean, like we can pinpoint it down much more specifically. Right. And so I've been working with veterans for the better part of my 24 years and um, and have worked in a VA system long, long time ago and uh, had some lots of training that way. But so I get a lot of private, um, I get a lot of uh, veterans who come who don't go to the VA, who come to me because I do PTSD treatment, a, you know, a intensive PTSD treatment, and have an understanding of, you know, really what it is. And it's, and it's people, people think it's, you know, people just don't understand it. I don't even know how, there's not like a word or a sentence to describe it. It's people kind of in the mainstream of life or civilian life. Mm-hmm. So when we're talking to veterans, it's civilian life. Um, don't really get it. Like families don't get it unless they've really experienced some kind of like being in the moment. Like if you're in theater, so that's yeah. that's veteran talk, right? So if you're in theater and you're serving over in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or in Turkey or wherever there's a war-torn zone going on, um, if if you're here in the United States, you're not you're you're in country. You know you're not in theater, so you're right. not actually getting the experience. It's out of sight, out of mind. So what's happening, and and this is a really easy way to think of it, is when someone in the military goes into these things and experiences not normal what their normal daily life is of like what we do every day, then and then all of a sudden one day they go, okay, your six months is up. You're coming home, and here's your life. Right. Now be normal. Yeah. Uh-huh. 
Okay. Well, you know, because 24 hours ago there were bombs going off next right. to my head and you could hear sirens and there, I mean, and on and on. Or, you know, people die and blow up in caravans of, of people and walk on IEDs and there's all kinds right. of stuff. So, um, chronic trauma. You what? Chronic trauma. Yes, chronic and complicated trauma. So yeah. so one experience, it doesn't matter if it's one experience or 50 experiences. It doesn't matter if you actually are on top of the experience versus sitting 20 miles back and hearing it yeah. because the imminent fear of danger and death is there. Right. Those are all in the same continuum. Now, if you talk to a veteran or you talk to someone who's serving, you know, um, they will tell you that well unless you're unless you're killed or unless you're directly impacted that you know it doesn't really count because most are humble most have humility about like well i i don't want to take away from people who've been severely injured right. and say that well my emotional trauma is anything so it's very underplayed plus so, that's a that's a coping mechanism sure yeah Absolutely, is defending is that it's the compartmentalizing of the fact that that's not the same. It's you know survivor survivor guilt. You know for a lot of guys um, and women that are there serving, thinking, well, this isn't really, you know, nothing bad happened to me, so I'm okay. I can't say that you know my friend died or this happened, so therefore I can't take anything from that. Right. Um, but that's not the way this is, and so a lot of times the, you know these people come back and. Um, we, I'll spend a year or two just getting them into a space where they can understand they're having all the symptoms of trauma, but they're underplaying it and minimizing it because they're, they've built a compartment around the fact that they don't count because they didn't die or they didn't lose an arm or they didn't lose something. And, and the circumstances that this happens under, I mean, the amount of courage and the amount of bravery and the amount of mental fortitude and ego strength talk about a reality manager right the ego is the reality manager the amount of courage and strength that takes for someone to keep going on and keep going and being resilient and then come home and still function yeah it's quite something it speaks a lot to the human brain it speaks a lot to the person themselves and when you get people that really i mean fall apart um, it's not because they're weak. It's not because, you know, they're not capable. It's because the trauma is so intense in the brain and, and, and it falls out differently on different people. But let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. You just brought up an interesting point because okay. PTSD, uh, you can correct me if I'm wrong. PTSD, Which I will. Yep. PTSD doesn't happen in the field. PTSD happens when you come home. And that's a point where there should be relief on that chronic trauma. And you would think people would be... You know, people who haven't experienced it or haven't experienced combat would think that would be a relief that would help them. But instead, it makes the problem worse, doesn't it? That's when it manifests itself. Or am I wrong? Do you get PTSD? So, in so, the you, can, so you can have, so post-traumatic, right, yep. stress syndrome, right, so PTSS. So the syndrome can be from the moment it happened. It can happen anytime once it's ha once the trauma has occurred. Right. Or the thought of the trauma existing and perceiving a trauma has occurred. But your reaction to it the reaction is to usually it, appropriate. With, when you're in theater, the, uh, the reaction is considered generally appropriate. So, so, the reaction, so the reaction in theater can be most often times there is no reaction. Well, it's an appropriate reaction of keep going because if you don't, keep exactly. your head down, you're going to be killed too or right. something bad's going to happen. Right. But the reaction is often acute and quick right there, and then it's contained, mm -hmm. 
right? And I'm generally speaking here too, because I can give you lots of examples where that's not true, but generally sure. speaking. But if we look at the mainstream post-traumatic stress and we talk about it in terms of of coming home, returning veterans and people who are still serving, is that it can happen a month later, yeah. a year later, three years later, 10 years later, because people aren't either, they don't, they've compartmentalized it so well, or they haven't compartmentalized it, but they think they have, and they're actually acting out on it, but nobody's recognizing that that's what it is. Right. So I often see that. So um, I see that a lot because people will come home and they'll go back to their lives or let me give you a good example. So I have, you know, I, I see police officers. They were in the military. They become police officers. Mm -hmm. And then, and then, yeah, <laughs> right? And oftentimes I'll be sent police officers for evaluating them for post-traumatic stress, not based on the job that they're currently in, but based on the fact that the job that they're currently in is triggering the symptoms sure. that they never addressed from serving in the military. So, and, and that's by and large what really happens in those particular cases that all of a sudden, you know, um, for example, I have a... a, a a 30 something that came was sent to me from his chief that has been drinking a lot and um and they need an assessment of safety because of the drinking and why was he drinking and so on and so forth well because he's gone untreated in his trauma from serving and when he got discharged it's you know it's kind of like I don't want to call it a dirty little secret, but it kind of is. The dirty little secret is, is that, you know, the guys and the, and the women know that if they say anything when they're being discharged and they're being um, exited in their interview, if they say anything about trauma or anything like that, that's a whole right. worm yeah. hole, right? So, so people just go, yep, I'm out. I'm done. We're good. Yep. Everything good. Good. We're out. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then, yeah. and so they come home and now they're like, yep. So I'm out and now I've got to deal with all this stuff because I exited and no debrief. And, oh, I got debriefed, but it was not around trauma, right. so nobody helped me. And now, you know, if they're still serving in the military, nobody wants to go back in, to the VA or to get service from people that are in the military because then that goes back on the record and then you're done. Yep. So And so there's a fear and an anxiety around that, which adds to the trauma and or people come out to private practitioners like me. Right. And then because I don't have, it's all confidential. It's within, there's no transport right. of information. So they're more likely to come out because they're able to deal with that. But people won't seek the help because they have that stigma attached to, I have this trauma, I don't want anyone to see it, and therefore I'm going to really fight hard to contain it. Right. And then usually it, you know, it leaks out. Yeah. So in the cases of some of these police officers that I've seen, um, it leaks out in lots of very interesting ways. I mean, it's it's there's no one way, but if I could give a generalize, it's usually like excessive alcohol, excessive anger, agitation issues, um, abuses of power sometimes, uh, uh, you know, Domestic violence is a very large part of this fallout, um, you know, and, and then that's and it's not all people with PTSD, but that's right. where you see it come out in people who have it in those ways. Um, now, there's plenty of people who come out of the military and 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 who are still in the military and have PTSD, but they manage it through things like exercise and they do seek out help and they do contain it right away. You know, back in the Vietnam days, I mean, I have two Vietnam veterans right now that, I mean, we've been working together for the better part of 20 years and it's taken 
this long to just be able to talk about just a little bit of the stories yeah. to be able to get anywhere to get some relief so they're not having recurring you know the flashbacks and the re-experiencing which are symptoms of so the flashbacks are you know you go you're you're actually in the moment thinking about the thing that happened and then you end up feeling physically like you're there and you can go into these states of being like as if you're in the moment and yeah um i had a veteran many years ago who um I was I was at a VA and a helicopter came in and landed on the helipad and it was in between me and the other buildings and it was right next to the office I was working in with mm -hmm. him. The helicopter came in and he had served in in Vietnam and yeah. he was in he was in the am, in an ammo dump and yep. he was working that and the helicopter was coming in and all of a sudden without any warning he dropped and grabbed my arm and pulled me under the table and was like get down get down get down I'm like uh oh. So, yeah. <laughs> so I firsthand had an experience of someone having a flashback and wow. re-experiencing right yeah. in the moment because, you know, and that's, you know, and people didn't warn any of the veterans. This is in a veteran place. You know, yep. nobody warned that, hey, there's going to be a helicopter, a Huey coming in and landing. So it, wow. it triggered his un, unresolved issues of the fact that that was happening. So, and that was very traumatizing for him because it was like, it sent him all the way back. And it was a rough like year after that, because he wouldn't sit in that office after that. We had really? to meet outside. Yeah, wow. We had to meet on the other side of the building. Like, yeah. and I was fine to accommodate, but you have to be able to understand that that's how triggering that kind of event is. And imagine if you're seeing helicopters fly in and out all the time, every single day. I mean, it's a, it's a yeah. constant feeling. Uh, it's just fascinating stuff. So talk about the, you talked about going back and unraveling some of these experiences so that they don't relive them. And I right. find it interesting that that's the way you would do it. Is that about processing? In other words, if you sit down and talk about it, taking feelings and putting them into words is part of processing, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's the key component here, as opposed to just living with them in your head. Right. Yeah. So Right. So we don't have to. So the examples that I give of like when I have to, when I've gone back, not have to, but when I've gone back and had stories or examples come out, um, two things. You don't have to have the story to do the work. Mm -hmm. So I don't need to know the, okay. the story to do the work. However, so going back through it is not a normal part of the process. No, it doesn't yeah. have to be. It doesn't have to be. It can be for some, but it doesn't have to be. So some people want to. But it's more about, I call it unpacking the bag of feelings and, 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 and physical pieces to it. And when the person leaves the office that day, I always make sure they're packed back in the bag. Yep. And one of the fears that I hear, and this, and you can use this for anyone with trauma. It doesn't have to be just military trauma. This is trauma in general with post-traumatic stress. It could be from natural disasters. It could be from 9-11. It could be from rape. It could be from assault is that when you're doing a therapeutic process with someone and you start helping them unpack the feelings, you've got to be able to help pack them back in before the time is up in, at the end of the session. Yeah. Because So there's it's, it's really, talk about baby steps. It's very baby steps so that the person doesn't get overwhelmed that you're opening up a bag and then letting them walk out the door and fall right. apart. So, and unfortunately... I see a lot of people that end up coming to me after they've been to someone that unpacked the bag and didn't put it back together, and then they were a wreck for three years. <laughs> Give me an example of putting it putting it back together, say at the end of the session. So we only so so I, how do I put this? Um, I'm a good read. I'm a good read. So I I oh, monitor. I would imagine. Yeah. I monitor the situation in the room very heavily around like 
almost sentence by sentence of what's coming out, the emotional nonverbal reaction that I'm getting, mm -hmm. what's happening with the body. Is the person starting to get teary? Is the person starting to get angry? Is it like monitoring like how far the edge can go before we need right. to stop and say, okay, I think we're good. Or they will tell me I, I'm done with that. Yeah. And, then, and then we talk about, you know, what do you want me to do with that? you know, that was very sad today. What, what are your thoughts? What are you going to, what are you going to take out of here? And I have a, te I have a technique. I don't know if other people use this. I have a technique where I say that, and I use, if you've unpacked your bag, you're going to leave that stuff with me. Yeah. And oh, once you've left it with me, yeah. when you leave, you don't take that with you. You may have the memory, but you don't have to take those feelings because now I have them. They're mine. Right. And and occasionally I'll get some of the guys, some of the guys are very sweet and, you know, they like, they're caretakers. So they're like, I don't want to leave that with you. I'm like, I'm good. <laughs> right. So it's, it's about building, yeah. it's talk about relational connection, right? It's about building a corrective emotional experience where that person can trust that I can manage or that a therapist or somebody, a doctor like me yeah. can manage holding that for them and that they don't actually have to take that load that they just left. Plus the actual me. process of setting it down. Right. Is, is important in learning how the ability to right. do that. Yeah. Right. So when it's so when people go home, they can go home with a technique that I call thought dumping. And so they're gonna do similar thing at home without me there, but it's just in different ways and I teach them how to do it and leave it without having to carry it. And then they can bring it back to me. So there's always this reciprocating process so that it's never just out there in the world existentially that they have a grounded place to put it. So whether it's with me or on paper or speaking it to a recorder or or doing something else to unpack it for themselves and put it back together it's teaching them how to um, physically and emotionally manage yeah and regulate themselves so that every time they have an experience of the bad thing or the triggering thing they don't completely dysregulate and go into a panic attack right. or, fro or become frozen or become into a fugue state which is that dissociative anxiety state because post-traumatic stress syndrome is all about anxiety 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 yeah. and fear fear of anticipating something bad happening right so it's you talk about threat generating right, right. so people yeah. with post-traumatic stress um are most of the time in threat generation yeah so the goal is in therapy i know how that is right <laughs> yeah. right is to keep them yeah. going further down the continuum of not being in threat generation as much with the intensity so you're bringing them d down to the lower levels of intensity and less re-experiencing less flashbacks but the thing with ptsd or ptss is that it it doesn't it's with you forever anxiety right. and it, you have to embrace that you have these experiences that give you this thing and therefore it's there now you have to learn to manage it control it maintain it you know there's all kinds of different ways to manage it yeah well this goes back to the show we did earlier about baby steps and right the ability to manage that usually comes down to the small step of setting it down at all mm -hmm. at, at any point in the first place and then uh you start to do I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to sit and watch the Patriots game and I'm not going to worry about that. Right. So you do it for two hours. Right. And the more you keep doing that for a limited period of time, the better you get at it. And right. And you're, you're able to set it down right. more often for longer periods of time. Right. And I, well, and to that point, I think that there's, you know, there's, I call it old school, new school. So lots of, you know, old school thoughts in therapy and doing this work is that, you know, you know, the stop thought technique. Right. Yep. Do you, you know, like people used to say and they still do. Many people say, you know, put the stop sign up, say stop for now. 
I can't tell mm-hmm. you anybody yeah. that looks at me ever and says I can do that. Most people are like, yeah. don't tell me to say stop. And I'm like, I would not tell you that because that's not my technique. My technique has been, it's all through anecdotal evidence plus my cognitive behavioral background is that you can't make something stop. <laughs> so so what I do is a lot of visualization and not like the not like that traditional kind of cliche visualization. It's more about I give a very specific visual about when you're fighting anxiety and you're trying to it's like swimming upriver. If you're fighting it to stop it, you're like a salmon going upstream. What does that look like? It's yeah. endless. It's yep. endless. It's exhausting, it's tiring and you drown essentially. But when you look at anxiety and you think, I have anxiety, I have stress, I have trauma. You know what? I do. And right now it's sitting with me. I know it. And I'm going to let it ride down the river instead and just go with it. Yeah. It resolves itself out. It doesn't, it's not gone. The memory, if you have a memory of trauma, you're always going to have that. So therefore it's going to elevate itself here or there depending. It's a matter of how good can you get at riding it down the river so that you're floating in the shallow, you know, just on the float or I give people visuals that will match their personalities, whether it's water or air or whatever. Right. So they stop fighting it and saying, stop. Cause that actually, it's like saying, don't think about the elephant in the room. Now you're going to be thinking about the elephant in the room. Exactly, That's the yeah. same thing. It's like, stop, visualize stop sign. And then the person obsesses or manifests this like, um, you know, being stuck on the stop sign and then being beating themselves up for not being able to stop it because they're stuck on the stop sign, but it's still having the intrusive thoughts. And then now you're just defeating the purpose. So I'm not a big fan of the old school thoughts of like that technique because I've not had that work pretty much ever. So I had to design this other thing going, okay, we got to think of a different way to do this. And that's where I came up with. People don't understand that you can um, change your reactions. Right. And I I remember I was doing an interview and it was kind of unrelated to all this, but in a way it hit home for me uh, because this woman was talking about chakras of all things. And I made the statement at some point in the interview, well, you can't help what you feel. And she said, really? And she said, well, imagine you and your wife are uh, walking along the street with your toddler Uh and you're in a big fight and you're going at each other and you're both really angry and you come to a crosswalk and you hit the crosswalk sign and you're waiting for it to turn to walk. And you're arguing, and you're very intense, and you're into this, and all of a sudden you hear tires screeching. You know, what happens? You start looking for your kid. You make sure your kid's okay, right? right? He goes, exactly, but you're not fighting. You're not angry anymore. You instantly switched to this other set of reactions and emotions. You're capable of doing it. You just have to learn how to do it. Right. And so this whole thing about, and uh, another guy who's... uh, an internet guy, and he's done some TV shows, but he's a mindfulness type of guy. Mm -hmm. And he talks about flow state. And flow state is that point where all of this has been set down. And usually you're introduced to it involuntarily. Yes. You're playing with your grandkids. You're playing with your dog. You're on a run. And all of a sudden you realize, I'm really happy here because I've set down. I'm not threat generating. I've set down the past. I'm not worried about the future. I'm just here. You're present. Right, exactly. Right. So you get introduced to it as doing it involuntarily, but once you understand what it is, you start seeking getting into that state through those mechanisms, and then eventually, hopefully, what you do is you have the ability to just get into that state. Because it becomes automatic, and that's that's the whole thing about rewiring your brain is that people – I encourage people to realize – that you can rewire your brain to do that. Yep. Because 
your brain got wired to do what it's doing right now. So if it's negative and threat generating and responsive to trauma and flashing back and re-experiencing and panic attacking and throwing up and all those things, you've wired your brain through your thought process and your reaction pattern to get it there. Yep. Plain and simple. Yep. So how do you fix it? Well, it's going to be a mindful process. The way you got there, it wasn't very mindful. It just happened, right? right? So to speak, air yep. quoting, right? But the way you're going to get out of it is you're going to rewire it by catching those. You're going to capture those thoughts. You're going to change them by challenging them with the process of, hey, I'm not, I'm not that thing anymore. That's not happening to me now. Grounding techniques. I mean, there's just a whole series of things to rewire the brain pattern so that eventually it just becomes yeah. automatic. I've gotten to the point, and this is my whole peaceful thing. We've talked about this in the right. past. This is my whole peace thing. I've gotten to the point where I can set it down mm-hmm. if I'm not challenged. Right. In other words, so I need this time when I can sit there and I am not worried about what's going on here at work or elsewhere at work, or I'm not worried about the past. I'm not worried about the future. I'm not worried about what's going on in politics. I'm just here. Right. And I need a couple hours to be here and just enjoy this and not have conflict and not have need and desire and not just satisfaction. I'm here for now. Right. You know, and so, but I'm too easily stroked out of that. In other words, you know, sometimes when I'm trying to be there, and that's it. And I understand when I get up in the morning and drive here, I've got stuff to deal with. That's fine. I can deal with it. Yeah, you have to come deal with me. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) When I get to those moments where I've got peace, I don't like it being challenged. I I just, you know, don't bring me conflict. Don't bring me... You know, yeah. Like I said, I tried to impl- it, I tried to implement the curfew. Yeah. It's like uh, I don't want to talk COVID after nine thirty at night. It's going to be there tomorrow. I can't do anything about it right now. Right. Yeah. You know, it's just intruding on my peace at the moment. So, so see, you've done a or lot staying of staying off staying off Facebook. You know. Right. For some people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But see, so so for you, Lou, right, like many people who do the work on yourself, right, you're doing yeah. the work, you're a constant work in progress, and you're doing the work, you're trying to be mindful, you're trying to find the awareness places to be able to um, manage and be functional so that you don't become dysfunctional to a degree that would be impacting or, 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 or deficit. To the degree I've been in the past. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So generally speaking, when people come in my office – much of the time, people haven't even started that process no. at all, which is surprising. At, it's not surprising at, to me anymore. Change, but they're at you can't change how you feel. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And and it's I've tr- you know it's the you know that age old I've tried that it doesn't work I've tried that it doesn't work I've tried right yeah and so it's really slowing the process down and saying because people always say well how long is this going to take I'm like as long as it takes you to practice it which is always frustrating. You can see the frustration on someone's face. Like, really? Yeah. Like, well, you want a different answer? Ask a different question. Right, right. <laughs> so, and I always tell people, in, in a year, in a year from today, you'll be different if you do the work. But that's talking, it, this gets back to a Baby Steps episode. Right. Go back on our podcast. Go back here on, on Facebook and yes. find it. Um, that's the problem because when the question is, how do I change that? That's too big. Right. It's way too big. The, if the question is, how do I set that down for now, and you give your clients and PTSD an answer, just leave that with me. Right. And they may do it for half an hour, but that's all it takes. It's, it's the ability just... of figuring out that they can. Right. And then once they can, they expand that. Right. Ho- hopefully. So the work I... is to expand the ability to do that. Well, so this is, so this is um, 
I, I can't give specifics about the person, but what I can give you is an example of a person who's had some severe trauma from something a, a parent in, in their life said to them many years ago that was very traumatized. Said. said yeah, interesting. Said something about them basically being born. Yeah. Right? And the way that this person manifested the perception of the commentary stayed with them, I would say, the better part of 50 years. Sure. Right? Or... 40, at least 40 years. I can't remember exactly, right? How old were they when this was said to them? Um, I believe that they were in their teens, okay. All right. yep. roughly. Yep. So, um, And so it stayed with them and stayed with them and stayed with them on top of some other stuff that had been traumatizing, but this one thing. And so when I first met this client, um, they told me this, this experience, and I'm sort of truncating this a little bit, so I don't want to do it at a disservice because I imagine that person might be listening. So, um, But they, when they told me the story... I heard it in a different way, a contextual different way than the person had interpreted. But when we hear things and we experience things, we base them reactionary on, on our experience base. Yeah. Therefore, if we're already trauma-based and we already expect that we're going to be slapped down, we're going to read things or we're going to take in things that might be innocuous but actually read them as being very traumatizing. Right. So I gave a reflective frame. I changed the way you could look at it because I believed what I heard was totally different than what they had heard right? and how I framed it. And I, I believe, and this person will probably correct me if I'm wrong, that they experienced this, this for so many years with such heartache and pain and hurt that when they heard what I said, they came back, I believe, the next session and they said that it had changed their whole experience, that it had been so freeing and relieving to, they, no one, they'd been to other therapists. No one had ever said anything about that. No one had ever changed it. But they had felt such a different physical, emotional change just because I had framed it differently. Right. And that's what we were speaking to right there is it was a rewire immediately. And it was, it, you know, and the thing about it was as rational, realistic, and reasonable to think that, oh, my gosh, that alternative thought actually probably really is what was meant by it. Yeah. And it what, but the interpretation at the time, because the person as a child or the teenager was so damaged that they went right to that, which is what most people do. But that's how you rewire is you look at the alternative ways of looking at something that are rea realistic. I mean, if the person had really said that and there were other evidence pieces to say, oh, that's probably what they meant and that was really crappy. It still was a crappy thing to say, this yeah. thing, but nonetheless, it was the context where I saw it, I was like, well, I think this is what really was meant. I mean, it just freed this person up so much that yeah. it reduced their symptoms by at least 50%, maybe more, to feel like uh, that relief. They like stopped talking about it. They stopped ruminating about it. They stopped. What a relief on the brain and the heart yeah. and the body and the physical, yeah. having that ruminate for all those years and then you know, and that's what people do with trauma. Yep. The trauma is constantly churning and churning and churning, just like anxiety. Anxiety just churns and churns and churns because you're always in the, you know, the, um, you're generally adapting all the time to, a, you're in alarm, your alarm, alarm, yep. alarm, and then you s respond with whatever that is, you know, the overreaction to whatever or the meltdown or the panic or whatever. And then right. instead of going to reset and calm, people who stay in the trauma response or they stay in the anxiety response go right back into alarm, 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 alarm. Yeah. And then they tap out. They don't go to calm. They go right back to reset of alarm, alarm, alarm. And that's and so to rewire that, you have to have these breaking points of acceptance, 
yeah. recontextualizing or reframing or generating alternative thoughts or all these strategies that are very dependent on each person because you have to find them yeah. to work. But it's just in people don't want to put in tons of practice, but it's really not a ton of practice. It's just these little tweaks that right. have to happen and you have to just stay the course in the process. Plus, it's also difficult, even if you're even if you're aware of what's going on, even if you have uh, processes and and reaction uh, alternatives. Right. Sometimes it's still hard because Absolutely. that trauma is deep, and, and it gets it just it gets triggered, and it's there. And some days you deal with it well, some days you don't deal with it well. Exactly. Yeah. But having a framework where you can go back to and say, "Oh, there's an alternative to that thinking," instead of re-injuring yourself yeah. over and over. You know, we, there's a difference between like complicated chronic PTSD yeah. and then <clears throat> kind of PTSD that resolves out and, you know, you have it versus you're reacting to it all the time. You know, it's, it, you know, people who have car accidents, how in a month do they still drive by the space and, and that they had the accident and, and not fall apart? It's because they've been able to rewire the brain and the thinking around, well, you know, like I had a car, a deer, a deer hit me. Everyone always laughs at that. A deer hit deer me. Hit I, didn't, I didn't hit the deer. The <clears throat> deer hit, hit me. Yeah. This is years ago. And so for the longest time driving down that road is I would always slow down for years. I would do it. I would slow down and I, I don't slow down anymore in that spot. Yep. But when I come to that spot and I was just coming through there two days ago, I think of that deer. Yeah. Every single time. Because why? Not because it's a memory per se. It's the trauma. Right. Of the deer hitting me. Yeah. That poor baby. Yeah. And she lived, I think. Yeah. But nonetheless, as that's, far as important. We know. that's important to me. Yeah. That's the image I'm going to hold. Right. Which is probably what's making it less dramatic for me is that the deer, you know, the deer jumped out at me. She hit me. She broke my front of my car. <laughs> Come on, Lou. Lou's, no, for I've people had... that can't see, Lou's got this face nope. looking at me like, Kim, you are so crazy. Not at all. I've had three, I've had three deer hits. Three? Wow. wow. One, two, three deer hits, yeah, so. Oh, my God. I know exactly what you mean. Okay. And I've been run into it as well. So, see? Yeah. Right. So, um, so, I did not hit the deer. It ran into the side of the car. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, that's, so, there's, so it's traumatic, but there's a difference between embedding something that's traumatic to be held forever versus something that's chronic and, right. and it's an imminent threat of death. So when you're talking about war trauma, the veterans that go through like that is no different in terms of trauma of any other kind, except for the fact that it's embedded in a different way. It's going to be, you know, you can't, here's, here's your life. You're totally normal. You have two kids, you have a wife or a husband, and now you're over in Afghanistan. You're being shot at. You're having bombs dropped on you. Uh, you might have your throat slit by the way. No. And I'm not trying to be gory, but seriously. And while you're sleeping and okay, now you're, Two, two seconds later, you're back in, you know, Omaha, Nebraska. It's quiet. Yeah. There's no bombs dropping. You can hear nothing at night. And you wonder why you're laying awake at night going, I'm, I'm going to die. Yeah. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. It's because you went from normal to not normal and then said, now you don't have a gun. Now you don't have any protection. And now you have to just be normal. Right. That's not normal. And then... That starts the process. Plus, by the way, I'm going to die and my kids are going to die. Right. Or my or, spouse yes. is going to die, which she didn't have to worry about in theater. Right. Yeah. So, so <clears throat> a very interesting piece that I always like to tell, because when clients call me that are veterans, they always ask how my office is set up. And um, 
not always, but many times I, I get that question. And, and or if they first come in to see me, they there's always the scan of my office, my room. Yeah. Now, you've never seen my office. I have a very large office um, in Bedford and in my other office. And I, I set it up for trauma patients because they you never put anybody's back to a window. You never mm. put anyone that can't get access to a door. You never have anybody that can't be completely closed behind them in terms of walls. Yep. You have to have free moving spaces and areas for people to move around and to be able to see. So people see the windows, people get to access to the right. door. There's no blocking. I don't sit near anywhere. Well, now I don't sit near anybody. But, you know, I don't sit anywhere where there'd be obstruction for either of us. Right. It's very specific to have that in mind. And people don't realize that when you go seek out, you know, a doctor for this work or whatever, you got to be mindful that they know what they're doing. Right. Because oftentimes that can be a triggering environment for people. So um, for all the consumers out there that are listening and want to go find someone to see or they need help, make sure you find out if, you're, if your provider is, is really knowing some of these pieces. Like you might say, like, how's your office set up? They might go, I have no idea what you mean. It's got chairs. And say, well, do you set it up for, you know, trauma right. and post-traumatic? And they, if they say, I have no idea what you're talking about, they're probably not going to be helpful right. as they could be to you because they don't know what you're talking about. Right. No, <laughs> right? it's and I've, yeah. and I've learned all those lessons through veterans teaching me along the way going, yeah, you need to do this. Yeah. Sitting in the to... office, they're uncomfortable because there's a window behind yeah, and, and Or, yeah. yeah, or something's changed or... Um, I, I made a very young in my career. I walked up behind a veteran. Big mistake. Yeah. I learned very quickly. I would never make the mistake again. I walked up behind a veteran and tapped him on the shoulder, but I was standing on his left yep. from behind, but tapped his right shoulder. I almost got punched. Yep. And he turned around and right to do it. And he's like, don't ever do that to someone. And I had that flush of like, oh, my God, he's going to kill me. Yeah. And I was, I mean, I was in my 20s at the time. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to die. And he's like, and that's, I never will forget that. And I've never, I always, it's like when you're running, you say on the left, like I warn first because the yep. alarm system that I was just talking about for the anxiety, the alarm system in someone that served right. in that kind of environment is always on and hypervigilant that they're going to protect themselves. And if they hurt you in the process because you came up on them and they didn't expect it. So, of course, I did recover from that and say, you know, we really need to work on that response. And he thought it was funny. And so we could make it. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, in my, uh, my heart got racing because I thought, oh, that's a good lesson for me. Yeah. You know, and, I'm, and so I've been very thankful. How deep that, and ingrained these responses are. Yes. Yeah. And so I've been very thankful that, you know, so many veterans that have come in and out of my practice for over the years have taught me how to help other veterans so much better because of what the, how they've showed me their experience, taught me what their experience is, and been able to... Um, let me help them, even though I haven't been in country in theater yep. doing what they've done. And and you get that a lot. The veterans will say, well, "How are you going to help me?" Especially when I was younger, they'd be like, right. "You're like two, <laughs> you know, you look <laughs> yeah. like you're two, and you're a girl." Um, yep. And you know, my thing was, you know, I I need you to teach me because I haven't been there. But I also, if if you have an arm missing, I know that that hurt. I don't need to be right. in. I don't need to have experienced to know that it hurt. Like right. so, I don't need to know. I don't need to have seen your friend get blown up and die in front of you to know that that is emotionally horrific and painful but i need you to teach me the experience that i can help you best because of what, how it impacted you and everyone's story is a little different and some people will tell you the full story through the story and some people just do it like in a very roundabout kind of way yeah and it's just over those times that i'm able to 
it's that good read thing of being able to know enough of the human experience to be able to say, I know how to help that. We don't have to talk about those bad things. Um, right. Contact information. Huh? Contact information. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Look, I had to say, huh? And I had such good hearing today with you, and I had to say, huh? <laughs> Uh, so this is so this is good. We didn't get to all the stuff on on trauma today, but I think that's a good start for people. And it's certainly, I think that when you see people out there that are doing good military work and and coming back and still staying in the military, going back on another tour yeah. or or just retiring, going into the reserves and stuff, you know, remember that there's a lot of stuff in there, and uh, and you don't have to directly have a full on impact of something to have something be traumatic in terms right. of of that. So. Um, it's one of those things. So n- next week we, we could talk, we can talk about your relationship. I, I yeah, we'll see. Oh, <laughs> I was I was being more facetious. I tried to fill up enough time so we didn't have to go there, so it's not painful. Yeah. So. No, no, it's a situation where you when one side's expressing. I'm sure you've been in this and talked mm-hmm. about relationship. When some side is expressing, sometimes they have to go after the other person, which I'm reluctant to do. Perspective always seems to challenge the other side. Of course. Right? Well, especially when it's in conflict to the perspective you don't Right. <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. Well, and I, th- I think that when you put it, when, you know, many, many shows ago, remember when we talked about triangulating? Yeah. And so when you have three people in a relationship, a child and two people, yeah, that's often an interesting mix. So you have, yeah. and I know that's part of the situation. So anyway. No, it's my, it's, it's my conditioning right is right a lot of the situation right yeah so all right so um did you have any other thoughts did we have any other questions did we have any people asking anything or joe says another really informative topic and uh jenna says uh jen is uh jenna's watching oh (laughs) thank you i think is it is it jana uh no no oh jan lennon no Oh, very nice. Well, thank you guys for watching today and or listening. And I will return next week, hopefully walking after the Boston (laughs) Marathon. I'll try to be the post-marathon show. I will be post-marathon. Well, by then, my quads will have released if I do it on Saturday. So it will be fine. I'll be sitting again, walking up and down stairs. No problem. It should be fine. You should run the whole hour. You should stand here and run in place the whole hour. No, that's not a good idea. (laughs) I don't want to do that. All right, you guys. Well, have a great week and enjoy this beautiful weather the next five days. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.